Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we'll be dealing with something a little bit unusual, to be perfectly honest. But first, hello, I am Mike. I'm a learning designer with the Open University, a man with a microphone and imposter syndrome incarnate. And joining me this afternoon, we have... I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University and a guy with a PhD Ooh. in education. Ooh. That is the first time you've gone, ooh. <laughs> That's been my tagline since we started. Well, normally you're very embarrassed when you say it, whereas today you're very kind of bold. Well, it's just like I'm going to get over it, hadn't I? <laughs> Mr. Arbiter of Sound. <laughs> Hi, I'm Liz. Uh, I'm the Head of School of Digital Education at Arden University. Um, hi, I'm Chris, and I'm a learning designer at Cranfield University. Okay, so um, folks, we've got a little bit of an unusual one today. So uh, here at the uh, Metaphysical Pedagogzilla podcast office, uh, we've had uh, a message through, but it's not come through Twitter like usual, but via OWL. So apparently, Hogwarts, uh, that magical school for witches and wizards, has been struck down by some sort of terrible disease uh, that's rendered everybody absolutely incapable of using magic. They don't know how long it's going to last, but it's massively disrupted their teaching. And as we know, they rely pretty heavily on magic to do it. And subsequently, they've reached out to us as learning design consultants to, um, to help them out. So the return owl is going back in one hour. <laughs> and ask for our initial proposal and plan for how we can help them out. So, let's have at it. How could we help Hogwarts pivot from magical to non-magical teaching? I had a brief look at their um, their curriculum, and it looks like actually about half of the stuff they teach doesn't require using magic at all. So there's stuff like herbology, I noticed, and potions, and they are they're pretty good. They're pretty good from a kind of pedagogy design already, in that they they're all active. They're about students getting to do things and produce things. It all seems very authentic and closely related to, you know, their kind of post course consciousness as wizards. Um, and the, there's also though a few where they they don't use magic, but they actually seem to be pretty poorly pedagogically designed. A brief look at some of the student feedback about them particularly isn't great. Things like um, having a look at my notes, um, astronomy. Um, they've got something called Muggle Studies, which again, there's issues around just the name, which we might come back to a bit later. Um, history of magic. So they seem to be pretty much wrote, you know, learn this, learn this fact, fill in this exam and and maybe that needs a looking at as well, even though they they don't they're not really been transformed by the lack of magic. But then the, and then there's the whole bunch, which is possibly less than half. I don't know which do require magic to do. There's something called uh, defense against the dark arts, which I haven't got my head around. Divination, which I know a bit about anyway. Those probably would require magic to to do them, and I think those are the ones that we we might need to focus on. Charms, charms. Yeah, that's an, oh okay, that's a big one that uses magic, isn't it? I guess. Leviosa and all that kind of stuff. Yes, <laughs> I've seen a bit of it and seen some of the issues. But yes, yeah, so may, I, I, that seemed to be the approach, and that maybe that we need sort of different approaches to different sorts of modules. But that was as far as I got, really, and possibly would need it hand to hand it over to people that know a bit more about. about yeah, let's, let's let's continue to pool our knowledge then about what we know about um, Hogwarts. So, uh, Liz, Chris, do you want to jump in next with um, your thoughts? So, I would definitely say that um, the teaching methodologies at Hogwarts are where they're non-magically dependent, they are actually really old-fashioned. 
Um, so uh, for taking face to face to its Victorian degree. So <laughs> I think it's I think there is definitely an argument for the fact that we could go in there and completely overhaul their whole curriculum um, in terms of teaching, teaching and pedagogy. But just focusing on issues, uh, sort of things that are magically taught or magically dependent, rather, I think there are some inherent issues as well with some of the subjects. So, for instance, I sort of Dumbledore has said numerously, numerous occasions, he can't hold on to a defence against the dark arts teacher. So they lose one every year. So they've got no consistency in their teaching at all. And the students themselves are really are really struggling. So I think that's something we need to think about. Yeah, I suppose that's kind of sort of staff and student well-being in there as a, as a consideration. If you're losing a, losing a faculty member on a yeah. subject every They're year. being headhunted, are they, or poached by the universities, or what's going on there? I mostly, mean, I know mostly they turn out to be evil and turn out to be <laughs> working for you-know-who. There are some rumours that uh, that position's cursed. But most heads of departments in most universities are evil. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that would be Thanks. an issue. Well, let me say, okay, then, uh, deans. <laughs> I'm only at the dean level. <laughs> but, okay. I said most, you know, you could be one of the few. There's rare exceptions, Liz. <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer morally ambiguous than evil. Okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> Chaotic good. Um, okay, um, Chris, how about you? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I was kind of a bit sort of worrying about the, not worrying, considering the problem to start with. I mean, have they just lost the use of magic and are they going into classrooms still? Yeah, I mean, are they socially distancing or? I mean, that's that's a really good question. I'd, I'd assumed that the, the, the whatever disease it was causing it was conducted via magical properties anyway. I mean, if you've got people that can just appear, and, that's what apparitions do, doesn't it? Is they just appear and disappear wherever they like. Well, if they can do that, I'm sure magic magic viruses can do the same thing, really. So I wouldn't have thought staying apart would actually help much. Maybe, I, mean, I think that. Yeah, I think uh, to the best of my knowledge in this scenario, I mean, um, according to this owl, uh, they are <laughs> they are all still on site. Okay, um, they're practicing the somewhat potentially flawed herd mentality. Not herd mentality, a <laughs> uh, herd immunity. Sorry, oh, okay. herd immunity uh, approach. Okay, everybody in school is already infected, um, so uh, cannot use any magic. Okay, I mean the school's pretty impressive. I mean it's all it seems a bit public schooly in the way it seems to be organised with with houses and things like that. But, I mean, actually, a lot of it looks like Durham, which is quite surprising. But, um, yeah, so I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking that, um, yeah, it'd be nice to just visit and try and get our heads around it at some point. Yeah, definitely. I think this is kind of, I'd say this proposal we're putting together should hopefully get us a foot in the door, quite okay, nice. literally, mm. to get okay. in there. And, uh, so, so, anyway, sorry, Chris, um, did you, other than sort of very around the, the scenario, did you have any other um, initial um, impressions or, or understandings about Hogwarts that uh, uh, sprang to mind? Well, I suppose that there should be some, you know, support, post-magic stress support for students who are unable to move a broom without using their hand. I think there should be some sort of you know, consideration that this will affect daily life. So that, you know, I think they should be looking out for their students quite well. I think that generally the level of safety in the courses is pretty low. Um, <laughs> Very true. So, oh, right. You know, I mean, I mean, the number of things where there's sort of a, a chance for fatalities is 
quite a lot. So, Have they ever been that, investigated for this? I mean, is there any sort of <laughs> health and safety, or should I say elf and safety? Oh, that was a nice <laughs> walk for that. <laughs> I just said it, and thought, I've got to throw that pun in anyway. But, um, I tried to resist it, but I couldn't. Um, is, is, do they get any investigation like that? I mean, is Ofsted round or anything? I mean, do they pass Ofsted the inspectors? Only time, the only time that the Ministry, the Ministry for Magic has investigated, it was in order to put a plant in, and that plant was even worse than, than anything had gone before. So I don't think that they're really, Hogwarts is particularly interested in the Ministry for Magic's opinion of them. They, okay. they do kind of, they I think they do operate um, under the, the idea that that it's you know kind of they're one of practically four schools in the whole world um so um they can do pretty much what they want in a lot of ways um not that i'm not that i'm advocating for leagues or anything i'm just saying (laughs) i think this does raise an interesting point though because so they maybe have one or two student fatalities a year, apart from obviously the uh, the most recent set of years where they had quite a few, but that was more related to a massive wizard war. Um, right. but, well, most of they do have a lot of medical mishaps every year, most of which are healed with magic, which is now, of course, Ooh. not an option, so which raises considerations for things like um, care of magical creatures. Because if you were kind of impaled by a unicorn, then you know you went off and got patched up with the impalus non-unicornus spell or whatever, and um, you were right as rain. Whereas now you might just bleed out and die. So yeah, I do think right. we need to consider student health and well-being um, as uh, okay. uh, yeah, sort of building on Chris's point. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind there be this being an opportunity for reflection on the side of Hogwarts itself in terms of there. This is an opportunity for them to experience things as muggles. Essentially. Mm. And I do think, because I, I have thought that before that it, it does operate in quite an exclusive way. And it's really quite sneery about, I can't think of a better word, sort of non-magical magic. Well, I was. Or, or squibs, as they call them. Um, and so there is, there is a sense there, I think there is a sense that actually possibly inclusion is not really, or widening participation isn't really high on their list of list of worries and actually there i think this is this might be an opportunity for them to think about that i got contacted by one of the uh, t- herbology neville something can't remember uh, his surname um, who's, could have been um uh, Ed, and he's kind of trying to get an edi sort of approach together and he's specifically focused on the on the tendency to call everything muggles which has got you know the origins of the term you know like drug users the th- I mean, it was in that where it comes from 30s 30s jazz slang for people that smoke a lot of weed so it all has that implication of people that are you know useless parasitical that sort of thing and so i the, the phrase he's trying to introduce is alternatively magical and I'm not sure whether that's caught on, but I think there is a whole cultural competency approach that that one or two of them, the younger sort of professors, want to sort of try and include across the curriculum. So I think maybe this could also be an opportunity to bring that sort of stuff in as well. An alt madge movement. Yeah, <laughs> alt madge. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I would buy that T-shirt. I wonder what the colour scheme would be. <laughs> <laughs> just like different shades of brown, maybe. Yeah, I think um, it would be, unfortunately, just, just to say it's grey or brown or something. Greige, so, um, apparently, is another... Is a... Greige. Greige. Oh Mixed with grey and beige. Greige. Greige. So from my perspective, just kind of um, thinking about um, challenging some of these 
deeply held or kind of ingrained inequalities and things that have sort of, I guess, organically kind of just uh, festered within uh, Hogwarts. I personally think that the sorting hat system and the house system could do with a bit of a shake-up slash throwing in the bin because it's always struck me as somewhat uh, self-determining or self-determining, deterministic, that you tell one group of students that they're brave and successful, you tell another group that they're smart and bookish, you tell another group that they are evil, and then you tell the final one that they're Hufflepuff. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you know, then you get a group of students who are kind of living and being taught on the, the assumption that they will be brave and they're going to be the big leaders uh, of the school and of industry um, and of the, you know, the Ministry of Magic when they get out or that they're going to go and do a dark and evil scheme, or that they'll just be academically very successful, um, and then maybe open a dentist somewhere afterwards, um, or that they'll do a, a diggery and just become cannon fodder uh, for a magic war later. So I think, yeah, we've got an opportunity to kind of, well, as much as anything, I wonder if the magic hat's still working. I mean, I suppose it was a it was a magical hat. I wonder if it's just a regular hat now. It would if be. It <laughs> I mean, I think that for me is a, uh, we need to discuss that with students. I would be really interested to hear what their opinions are of that kind of house system and whether they feel that they're being kind of pushed into a particular way of being or a particular way of a way of learning and feel restricted <clears throat> by that. I think from what I've seen of a few presentations recently at universities that Fairly modern universities post, and I don't know if they're post ninety two ones or not, but you know they're definitely not the traditional red brick universities mm. that have introduced a house system um, for their online communities. They found that actually there were some real benefits to creating a community um, that works across disciplines and across years, particularly if you create a house system. And I mean, for most of the, the students going in, they weren't the only their only um, knowledge of houses is via either you know the the hogwarts or the game of thrones stuff so you know because they haven't grown up with that as a system like i said it's very public school in, in its kind of origins but um but they find that actually if you feel a connection if you create a connection between students based around something like a house and then you get second years talking to first years within the same house and so on and like durham has the college system which i think is really effective for a lot of student support because it's an alternative way that crosses those discipline and year boundaries for people to be connected. So I would keep the houses, but maybe just attribute them, assign them randomly. That was exactly you know? well, that. So that was exactly what that was actually what I what I was intending to say as well. Which mm-hmm. is the thing is, is houses in and of themselves are not are not an issue. So students forming communities are always going to be a good idea, even if those cool. communities start out as manufactured by the institution mm-hmm. so in order to encourage that to happen. And particularly, multidisciplinary houses are a really important yeah. idea because you've got that cross-pollination of ideas and experiences is, is crucial to learning. But um, my issue, my issue with the, the the Hogwarts house system is the idea of labels, and that it is as as Mike sort of said, deterministic or self perpetuating. Mm. So it allows myths, myth, the sort of it's almost like almost learning like, styles, learning styles, <laughs> yeah. myths of learning styles, and that <laughs> that for me, so it becomes a, a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, uh, whether you're magical or non magical. And isn't it like just doing a quiz to start with, of something like a way that you 
respond to things or how you handle certain situations. So like say the sorting hat is a quiz. Okay, that's kind of all well and good, but that doesn't mean you can't learn other skills or, you know, learn yeah. ways of doing things. So maybe there's a, a whole sort of um, house crossover kind of, you know, learn to think in a different way kind of thing. So uh, Yeah, maybe that's the halfway house. could become more slithery in a way, as in you're learning like the good bits about them. They're maybe a bit crafty and learn instead of like plunging into... If Gryffindor plunging in bravely, okay, that's fine. But maybe you should learn sort of being a bit more shrewd. Perhaps there's a sort of reframing of mm-hmm. the attributes um, and some activities around that. But do I mean do the do the actual do the actual groups need definition beyond here is a group? Yeah. Or do you think they would automatically start to define themselves in comparison to other people? I mean, is is that in is that innate to the creation of communities that they define themselves in different in differentiating different, themselves yeah. from others? Well, you look at like what happened in the row in Rome, and you had the greens and the blues and the reds and the yellows or whatever, and they they ended up, they ended up really being quite confront very confrontational with each other. And even though those colours don't necessarily have any sort of particular personality attributes to them but i yeah i think some people thrive there's a competitive element i suppose that comes mm. out which some people thrive in and some people don't and it's a matter of ensuring that those who feel inspired motivated by an element of competition are supported in those and, and that those that don't feel that they feel uncomfortable with that kind of level of competition aren't don't feel compelled to to respond to it but i think as that's the only element that would naturally occur. Whether or not people would define themselves separately as having different characteristics, I don't think so. They just like to define themselves as being better than the others for a whole range of fairly arbitrary and meaningless things, really, because that's what people do when they're, if, they're, if they're the competitive sort. Do you think that Hogwarts is going to like that their learning design consultants want them to dismantle the whole house system and then remantle it into something else? No. It's not overstepping our bounds slightly. It's not often that people like everything learning designers say anyway, is it? <laughs> no, it's true. This is true. I was going to say, actually, this could be a, a nice um, uh, point to say what we could offer them yeah. as learning designers, but also to say I think we should return to all of these points later uh, in the discussion okay. as part of kind of like, because we've done a bit of sort of uh, analysis thinking about what we think uh, some of the things that we can help with are. Uh, and then we can start thinking about how we can help with them or what some of those um, solutions or parts of solutions might start looking like. But yeah, if we just, I guess, briefly introduce how we can help them uh, as a group of learning designers. Uh, well, I'd kind of want to know what their curriculum looks like straight away and then begin to break it down. Um, I think the biggest, if it's something at speed, then I think it would be sort of um, a series of workshops and interventions to help the teachers think through what they're doing a bit more, rather than us diving into the details too much. Okay, so starting off with learning design, kind of giving that high level, um, sort of helping to facilitate a high level overview and look at the curriculum. And identifying a few key courses um, where uh there's crossover between other courses but those sort of linchpins where you can go okay is there a particular thing here we can help with so yes bypassing most of the magical stuff maybe um because you could still do a lot of observation with the magical things the magical lessons Mm. although they might benefit from some simulations 
but definitely the face-to-face side of it. That, that's more sort of like a tr- traditional wheelhouse, isn't it? We could we could have a crack at those. I mean, I think us as learning designers as well, something that we could bring in, as well as that higher level overview and kind of, you know, muggle perspective, as it were, is the fact that we know nothing whatsoever about magic. So we're able to provide a view purely on the teaching because everybody is very much my impression has been that everybody's very much wrapped up in the whole magic and mystery of it all and they're all busy scurrying around solving things in the walls and having wonderful mm. adventures whereas you know we would look at it very much from a structural perspective and could sit there and go actually this um let's think i'm trying to think of a, a really terrible class now was it astrology well it was there's just uh, astronomy it, um, isn't there astronomy. Astronomy. Divination. Divination. astrology would be in divination rather than astronomy wouldn't it yeah. To, wasn't there a, a magical yes. history one which was essentially just sticking them in the library for them to yeah. read for days and days? I think and days. that's it. Yeah, the magical history one is the one. I, from what the impression I got, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we can we can provide a perspective on things like that. You know, that that kind of teaching has sort of um, died out a little bit, or is in the process of uh, expiring. I, I think that what you and Chris just said there is is kind of what always happens when you let learning designers in through the door is that. People say, I want a quick fix because I can't teach magic anymore. Can you show me a technology that will do this? So, And I think simulations and coming up with a VR simulation or something, or even a games-like simulation, would be a way to do that. But then that's at right, at the, right at the kind of final stages of working out what your engagement needs to be. Because actually, once you're in there and go, oh, okay, yeah, you could do simulations instead of this, but maybe you want to go back and rethink the whole process right from the word go, because that will be more effective. And I think this is why learning design ends up being enabling people to adapt so much is because whatever the scenario, whether it's, you know, you've got to go online or you've got to start teaching without using magic, it's a way to actually go back to your first principles, rethink it from the ground up. And then end up making the whole thing better all the way through. And I think that's kind of what you'd where I'd want to start is what are your basic principles and then build everything else from that rather than looking for those fixes, at the, even though that's what they want. Yeah, I don't. The thing is, 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 is with, with um, taking magical teaching in a non magical direction, you don't want the equivalent of just shoving magic online and hoping for the best, mm. you know, sort of, you, you do want to be able to, um, to, to sort of, or, or like shoving, just shoving books online. It's actually, what is the experience going to be of teaching some a magical concept non magically and actually probably encouraging those, those teachers who are possibly teaching quite a lot on instinct or touch teaching, realistically teaching from their own experience but not necessarily actually reflecting on that in a way that makes it easy for a student to grasp or so there's something here that is actually a a huge part of for me I think what we could be encouraging here is the APD side of learning design so really Mm. encouraging teach practice improving their communication skills how to describe concepts you know, kind of like you say, Mark, bringing it back down to first principles, but really helping them break it down so that it's not so because magic actually, in some ways, for a new new magical user, in comparison to an experienced magical user, you've got that distance that's got to be travelled, and that distance has got to be travelled whether you are teaching magically or not. And so basically, if you're going to do what Chris was going to suggest, which is a series of interventions, which I think is what's necessary, we don't have the expert subject discipline expertise. But we can actually guide people through discovering the process for themselves. What would be the very first thing that you would do when, if you got a group of these teachers together? 
what would be the first workshop about? I would get them to teach magic to each other, not magically. That would be, I think, the first thing I would do is I would be encouraging them to pick something similar, specific. So, for instance, like like the that first levitation exercise, Wingardium Leviosa, getting them to teach that to each other and then doing a series of observations, so breaking that right down back to, okay, you're teaching the movement, you're teaching the word, you're teaching the inflection. Okay, right, let's go right back to why levitation why are you using this particular concept? Why are you using this particular form? And then breaking that right down into, okay, so what are the activities that we can use to simulate this so that you can then put that all together in a way that allows the student ultimately to use the magic without using the magic? That sounds great to me. I think there'd also be an opportunity in there to maybe even level up their teaching and kind of academic approach in general in that. Something that they don't something that they don't normally address actually is why things work as in how is what the actions they are doing interacting with the magic how is this causing the magic to do the thing there's not a lot of the actual um, theory of magic they don't do a lot on theory of magic they don't do a lot of theory at all and of course we know that new magic can be developed because people will develop new spells and things but for, sort of most students are doing it from a very behavioristic perspective there's no deeper understanding mm. of what of what and how magic works and that feels like that could be a real uh, boon both for the academic side of things for them to having to understand what it is they're teaching or at least kind of better um, describe what they're teaching but also for the students because that's starting to put tools in their hands to understand how the world around them is working um, and then potentially use that knowledge to make their own adaptations and improvisations but and I think that the, if they if we do that if we do that groundwork as well then as sort of you know kind of that w- if we then get to the point of okay right are there any technical solutions that or technological solutions that we can bring in to augment this then that gives us the opportunity to make that decision correctly we're basing mm. it on the right use case rather than just kind of shoving in something we think might work so for instance it could be. At that point, they could observe prior lessons that were done, but when magic did happen, in preparation for the time when magic might come back. Might. Yes, unknown. Do you teach charms if you don't know when magic's coming back? That's a really good question. I mean, somebody somewhere is still teaching event management. (laughs) This is a good point. (laughs) A depressingly good point. (laughs) And also, that's an interesting thing in that you were saying earlier about the way that people have been excluded in a quite exclusionary way that you mentioned squids. No, not squids. Squibs. 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 Um, I've never seen a squid in Hogwarts. Why you don't, you could then actually open it up if you got a widening participation agenda that you could actually say, well, if, you know, you don't need to be able to use magic in order to do these classes now, why shouldn't everyone be able to attend those sessions? I mean, I would start with going right back, let's say going back to first principles before looking at how you enact those activities. I would go right back to what is the context for what you're trying to do? Things like, you know, what are the policies that you're, that you're informing your decisions, being upfront and foreground, all of the different things that are coming into this, looking at students, um, 
student feedback from previous years. Mm. Um, so I know Transfigurations has got a lot of negative stu- uh, student feedback around it because of various limitations with, with, with what's been said before. So, you know, you're allowed to transform from a human to creature, from one male to another male, but the founders put this block in against changing from male to female, <laughs> and a lot of students have kicked back against that and said, well, hang on, why can't I change sex if I want to? And why is that against the rules suddenly when everything else is okay? So you'd want to look at things that are informing those sorts of decisions uh, and then also look at what is it actually you're trying to achieve by being a teacher? You know, the stuff you were talking about, Liz, with critical pedagogy. Mm-hmm. It's like, what exactly is the point of you? <laughs> what is the point of Hogwarts? What is it trying to achieve? Is it trying to achieve a safer world? Is it trying to make sure that these children, because they've got magic, aren't misusing it or damaging themselves through the use of it? And, and then look at all those sorts of things. Try and from that determine a set of learning outcomes from that and then just teach towards those learning outcomes, irrespective of what, you know, with, with whatever you've got that now works, and then say, as long as we can achieve those learning outcomes that achieve what we want to achieve as a school, then we take that approach. And I think that would be where I would start with this, would actually be that foregrounding the key issues, looking at what the top final learning outcomes are, and then through our learning outcomes, constructive alignment, and, and through that co- I know it's very mechanistic, a, a pr- kind of approach, but I think having that step-by-step guide actually helps. To be honest, though, mechanistic me- that mechanistic approach is is I- is ideally made for a crisis, and mm. that's what this is is a cri- is a crisis. Yeah. So that, taking that mechanistic approach is really good for creating something that will take you from from now into the uh, interim. Mm-hmm. And then you can then build on that because that what that does allow you to do is to take what works and keep it yeah. and change what doesn't when the world goes back to normal. Yeah. And also it allows you to kick out the stuff that you don't need to work because it's yeah. not what you're teaching for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it is that you see all this. I mean, you know, even before any crisis, it's one of the silver linings around crises is it forces you to go back and think about what it is that you're really doing. And I think one of the things people, as somebody said earlier, you just traditionally keep on doing the same thing and same thing without really thinking about why you're doing it. But when you then think, what is actually the specifics I need? Why am I teaching this when it's not one of the learning outcomes? Why is this on the assessment if actually that's not what's required? So to really key your learning out, your assessment to your learning outcomes and then what you actually teach to the assessments. And then everything else has been superfluous and hasn't been stuff that the, the students have needed to do. The other thing I would do at that initial stage as well is in amongst all this preliminary stuff, and we call at Durham, we call it the preliminary workshop, and I think it would work here, that contextual stuff, the goals, the cr- critical pedagogy. Also, Liz mentioned this when we were having a, a planning meeting yesterday for this podcast, student personas, and mm. I would say let's take out different students and I think that would be a key thing as well, because I, on the whole, people aren't thinking about who their students are when they're doing this stuff. And this this is very much again about um, about uh, teacher training and teacher development as well, and helping them be more reflective practitioners because they make huge assumptions. I think about students, particularly uh, in Hogwarts, which is very much a legacy institution. Um, they make lots of assumptions about their students, dependent on who their families are and 
which part of the world they come from and things like that. So I think if we could really help um, those teachers to, to, to come away from assumptions and make those personas student informed. So really great opportunity to do, um, you know, because it's a face-to-face institution, really great opportunity to do some focus groups, do some workshops, involve students in the design of the and design of the learning as well, help those teachers to design the learning for the students that they have rather than the students that they think they should have. I'm just wondering how much time is involved because that's an awful lot of essential work. <laughs> that's but, a very good point. But um, in, ex- in those situations where you don't, you know, things are having to be changed rapidly, uh, we end up with some pretty dodgy online scenarios that are hastily done as I've learned through my schools, mm. <laughs> my children's schools, um, who've done well, but you can tell they didn't have any time to develop anything. Um, so how do you get what you're saying into a compressed time period that impacts as many courses as possible? I have a suggestion on this. And I think oh, this on, actually then. neatly re- returns us to um, <laughs> something we mentioned earlier with what are the benefits to having a learning designer in that one mm. of the definite downsides of having a learning designer is that you contact them and say, can you please help us in this short-term crisis we're having? And then they get back to you with a proposal that's going to literally shake the mortar out of the bricks of your institution. Um, I think, think, yeah, looking at it from a practical perspective, I think our proposal back to them should probably feature a couple of strands and a couple of timelines associated with those strands. Mm -hmm. So, Based on our kind of initial recommendation, I'm not saying there's not more data gathering that would be done, but like I say, it's an initial proposal. Um, perhaps, yeah, um, some sticking plaster subject focus level stuff would be the best thing to do in the short term because they're in the middle of a you know a t- a term now and it's the middle of this uh, magical disease crisis. Mm-hmm. So working out what the immediate what the immediate areas are, specifically classes, that they are unable to teach completely in their existing forms because of the issue. So start with a subject focus and have that as a very short term kind of fix this as soon as we can priority. But then in addition to that, I think you have to say that it's only a very small part of a what should be a wider look at learning design um, for the entire institution, which might uh, have a couple of strands of academic professional development. Yep. Looking at the focus uh, goals and outcomes for the institution and also some sort of widening participation considerations that should be baked into the curriculums while all of this is being looked at. I think, um, as you were just saying stuff, um, my brain went back to the the lockdown and the children's schools um, and then the online learning they had to do. And I remember a conversation with you, actually, Mike, saying um, there's all this curriculum, um, but it would just make more sense if you enabled, if you threw out the curriculum at this point in time, as in you did a few key things. But you just concentrated on helping kids or helping any learner become self-sufficient, confident, learn the art of learning quickly and adaptable. And I'm pretty sure there's something else in there as well. But if you could concentrate on those key things, as in learning for a different environment, not a cramming your head full of knowledge way, which is based on an old factory system anyway, but um, that sort of you know how are you going to adapt and learn quickly if you can encourage people in their potential and in how they adapt to new situations and if you can give them those skills above the subjects you're teaching or 
as well as the subjects you're teaching, I think that would probably be a good short-term focus. That's a really interesting idea, actually, because that is one of the, I mean, that's a, an option, isn't it? It's to basically stop, stop and say, uh, you know, kind of in the short in the short term, focus on the non magical subjects, and then use those as opportunities to to start getting teachers on board with changing their approach, changing helping students to to focus on those things, um, you know, without needing to rely on a magic that isn't there, and then use that time to redevelop the magical curriculum for non magical delivery. And teach students to be more, will teach people to be more effective students. Um, it's a, if I remember, Jesse Stommel would be um, tip, uh, sort of doing a special little jig listening to this. But it's, um, it was one of his phrases, teaching people to be people or something. It's, yeah. Um, and getting those students to help us as a result, helping getting those students to help us design the magical curriculum, if possible, as well, and to teach that in a non magical way. Yeah, I mean, if they're not beholden to pretty much any external authority, then. Who's forcing them to still carry on setting to getting students to pass? I mean, at universities, it's it's very difficult because students have still got to they've got to pass the first year exams, they've got to pass the second year exams, not pass the exams because any university should not be doing exams. This is ridiculous. I mean, pass the first year courses, pass the second year courses, and so on. So you're looking at alternative ways to meet those learning outcomes, and that's kind of always the bottom line. Is okay. You, it doesn't matter. It, ultimately, it's can the students meet those learning outcomes and then you find an alternative approach to do them and that might require doing something that's not the same but is is an equal chance to achieve those outcomes. But then if you're a school that's pretty much a, a law unto itself or that well, why not just is- support the kids? Like This is something horrible that's happened to you. This is something that you can't do anymore. A core part of your identity is being able to do this stuff. Why do you still need lessons anyway? Aren't there bigger things to worry about? You're in the middle of a pandemic and and all that sort of stuff that Chris was just saying about teaching people to to be more resilient, teaching them to adapt, teaching them the mental health things that they need in order to get through that process. And then once that pandemic's over with and things have sorted themselves out, okay, they might have missed a year of their schooling, but they haven't missed a year of learning because then they can just start at a different stage and then they'll be that much more well-equipped for continuing on. Not only that, but the schools will be because they will then have a clue about how to do, how to teach in this new environment. It's kind of... That's something to be said for that as well, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of just learning well, how to work in a new way. So being not depending on people to tell you what to do in a lesson, but to mm. go out and find something out yourself yeah. so um i mean from experience um you know the government insisting in a, the real life lockdown that sorry i'm breaking the illusion um <laughs> in a covid pandemic um, that mm-hmm. every child the schools had to make sure every child is learning for four hours every day of material i can tell you the material wasn't all essential and some of it was a bit paddy but that's because it was so generic because children's levels they were unique um at the same time that meant the parents had to do it so there was a real pressure if if in this scenario hogwarts has no pressure whatsoever i would totally exploit that and go for an <laughs> essentialistic point like an essentialism point of view yeah. uh, essentialism greg mckeown i've got the book i just need to read it it's basically boiling things down to the simplest things you need to do is that what it's called? Out. That's a yeah. brilliant title for a book. 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, is that, it's definitely it's not that you have got the book, but you haven't read it yet. That's actually what the book's called. Yeah, it's called Essentialism. Um, and oh no, follow-up. sorry, I thought you meant it was called I've got the book, but I haven't read it yet. for a book. <laughs> no, the title of uh, this is a self-help book. I haven't read the title of my next title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, just. Uh, the short-term effort, I think, should be around just well, what's the essential. The essential is to mm. help kids be resilient, get them through. Um, and if there's some interesting topic work as well around deeper, a deeper understanding, as we're saying, about the mechanics of magic, that just turns mm. into science. But if there's a deeper understanding of magic... Um, well, you know, what's the difference between sympathetic magic, contagious magic, chaos magic? You know, I mean, there are there's loads okay. of theoretical things about how magic works and why it works, that it's imitative stuff and that it's actually about... It's critical th- critical theory of magic. Yeah, I think exactly. That's, yeah. that's what we need is critical yeah. theory of magic. Critical yeah. magic theory, yeah. There we go, critical magic. Okay. And then, um, and then around a topic of... Perhaps there could be a specialist topic, you know, that would tap into things and give them a sense of agency mm. where they try and work out what's been going on with this disease, this magical mm. mutation disease, whatever it is, and then try and work out a solution. The downside of all this, though, which is let's kick out the curriculum and just teach the essentials, <laughs> is that they don't need learning designers to help them do so much to do that, do they? Don't they? Isn't that so much a learning design job would be, let's take what you need them to learn? Uh, no, 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 no. But that's that's just the like that's just the immediate thing. Okay. That's just oh. the thing that you can go, okay, that's that's what happens this, yeah, this now. This is what you need to do now while, we, while we're having these chats. This is um, the uh, emergency uh, non-magical teaching. Yeah. But then there's yeah, a longer should. term, okay, that's the immediate pivot to non-magical. And then there's a long term, how do we now respond to that? Once we've we've um, uh, met the initial initial need, okay. Yeah. Yes, I'm um, I'm I, currently I, I, taking notes along the line of immediate, short, medium, and long term okay. uh, stuff for our proposal, which is due back via OWL uh, in less than fifteen minutes. Well, this is part of the problem as well. Is that I mean, um, Chris was earlier talking about simulations, and that's what I was thinking on a third of the initial proposal. Is okay, so. In physical reality, if you do regard uh, whatever you know, you you a charm, uh, it's not going to work anymore because you don't have the magic. But within a simulation, you could simulate it so that if they got the charm right within the simulation, they would have the same effects. So you could do that with VR or whatever. But I'm guessing that they they're not really that. I mean, they're still using owls, for God's sake. You know, it's like so I don't expect an is... email. You know, I don't expect a tweet rather than a hoot. Well, this is but... the thing. So, partly the reason for that is is that there's a, there's this idea that the magical field created by the use of magic disrupts technology. So, oh. so there's a really interesting thing here where you're going to have a whole school of students, some of whom are from Muggle families and therefore do have some familiarity with technology. But you have a whole school of students who are going to need, um, if we're going to be providing them with with technological solutions, that's going to seem mm. like magic to them for a start. But you are, we're going to have the absolute perfect storm of students who are going to need to have their digital their digital skills um, um, enhanced, as well as teachers who are going to need to have their digital capabilities enhanced. So you got this massive digital divide, yes. which. Okay, and also all the stuff around that because I'm guessing a huge part of their identity as students or as children or as whatever learners and also the identity of the 
teachers as teachers is their inability to use technology. They actually, that is part of who they are, is people yes. who don't use technology. And so therefore, you've got a huge sell where it comes to, to, to try and convince them to use this sort of stuff because they perceive themselves as people who don't need to use it. It's a sign of their weakness that they've actually got to go back and start using this. Yeah, so there's well, going we've... to be an element of identity that's going to need to be broken down there and hubris as well. Yeah, God, sounding more and more like Durham all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we've, um, we've, we've touched on it a couple of times, like sort of simulation stuff, but I think on the basis that they do have a Gringotts vault full of gold, if we're not coming down with a van full of Oculus headsets, then we're mm. probably missing a trick. They could okay. afford it. They're the only institution in the whole in the whole country who can afford all of those headsets they're and, loaded. and not... all of the Unity developers that we're going to need to develop the to develop the simulations. Yeah. I didn't know they'd got Matt. I didn't know they were loaded. Oh, okay, right. I'm going to go back and revise my proposal immediately. Well, Harry, Harry Potter <laughs> could do it. Harry Potter could do it on his own. Um, oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, he's he's like he's got like mega bucks. He's, ah, he's okay. down there every right. day. Just um, I'll just add one... a zero to the end of my daily rate all the way down. The one other thing, sorry, Mike, I know I know the owl's about to go, but the one other thing I just wanted to add was um, that um, although um, there isn't um, necessarily a regulatory body, um, students do have to pass two levels. Um, they've got, I think, it's an ordinary wizarding levels, and then I think the next level up is is it newts. They have to pass, so we do have a certain amount of regulation that has to happen. The students from Hogwarts don't go on to. There is no postgrad. There's no um, university level at that I understand. Um, so in order to get jobs and to do things, they will need some form of accreditation. The, so the one thing we are going to need to do is make sure that even if we do the this initial pivot around kind of um, you know kind of learning to learn um, comfort, sort of comfort, mental health, the inclusive the inclusive environment, and things like that, we that we're going to have at least sixteen to eighteen year olds who are going to be very worried about their prospects, and we're going to need to deal with that. Isn't there um, an option to just defer to just defer everything for a year? I mean, there is there is a university, but I think it's unseen. It? It's unseen. <laughs> oh, of course, the unseen university. I'd entirely forgot oh. about that one. <laughs> so we talk to them, and you know, Pontus Gibbons and all that, and ask them whether or not actually either uh, you know you've got a deferred intake, or whether or not there's. There's a sort of, um, you know, kind of mitigating mm. circumstances that could still ensure that the, people start their registration. They are going to need a no, a no detriment policy, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And their their attention is atrocious as well. I just want to throw this out. <laughs> I was going to I was going to say no wonder no wonder Dumbledore doesn't want any of his students going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected mashup. This is going to uh, <laughs> does this appear in the episode title? <laughs> the librarians very okay, eloquent. Um, Oh, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> Do all of us read Terry Pratchett? Four of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ish. Chris? Yeah, I've read some. Sam Vines. Yeah. Favourite. Oh, yes, they're, they're my favourite. The City Guards are <laughs> my favourite. <laughs> I wax and wane between which ones I love the most. Sometimes it's um, the Weatherwax ones, uh, the witches. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's the Vimes. And every now and then I just get in a real mood for the silliness of, uh, of the wizards, particularly um, Last Continent. Oh, uh, that's yeah. a real winner. And, and Eric as well. Uh, that's, uh... <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm on the clock. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there you go. This is what happens when learning designers are doing a business proposal and they've not had a cup of tea or a biscuit for... <laughs> 
so we've already. Can you please put in a line there for biscuits? Yeah, I think we'll actually. Uh, so day rate plus refreshments. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, our proposal is for the in- immediate term, uh, basically in the time it takes us to to get the train, get down, and start talking to people, is to have the students particularly for the time they will be spending in the magical classes which are currently not possible to pivot to studentship independent learning activities to kind of you know make better learners uh, help with their well-being kind of you know help them as people while that's happening uh, we can start discussions with faculty about um the magical classes uh, and how we might be able to uh, provide some assistance around adapting them with the likes of, for example, VR headsets, that sort of thing, but also take it as an opportunity to just return to some of their first principles with that, because obviously there's some stuff that we're going to need to pull in for developing those activities in VR uh, and also just kind of understanding. You know, it's, it's an opportunity for, for a quick review and, and a focus on what the uh, the essentials are. Um, alongside that, we should confirm what their accreditation requirements are yeah. um, with the Ministry of Magic. So I imagine we can probably get that um, owled to us on the train or something while we're heading down. Um, in the medium term, uh, once kind of the immediate crisis has been, well, the immediate teaching crisis uh, has had a, a great big plaster stuck on it, uh, we'll then... Uh, start looking at some APD stuff. So actually kind of uh, helping faculty members uh, take a look at their own teaching and maybe giving them some support, guidance and training around how they might uh, develop it to work better in the the current sort of non-magical crisis. And also just to kind of, you know, maybe lift the bar a little bit on it in general. Um, alongside that, we can then take a more detailed look at the uh, the magical subject level stuff um and kind of look to put in some some functional alternatives which might also work out being a little bit more inclusive and allow students even when the crisis is over students who are non-magically able to uh to participate in those kinds of classes longer term this would be kind of something maybe underpinning everything we do as we go along um but definitely something that we'd have as kind of a longer term focus would be um addressing some of the institutional level things so looking at the wider curriculum so the whole curriculum kind of review um how we are um, improving the teaching across all of it based on um what has been sort of learned and developed uh, in the preceding stages which i suppose would also include um you know broadening it and widening the participation mm-hmm. um for students who are who are non-magical because that's something we'll be baking in as we go along anyway um, but also looking at kind of student accessibility, inclusion, safety, and well-being, because I think we've identified some points where there's definitely room for some easy wins, or at least some definite improvements. Um, um, and moving away from a largely, particularly with the non-magical stuff, what seems to be a largely transmission-based model and exam-based model to something that's a bit more 20th century. Active and positive. Active mm-hmm. learning. Um, you know, and something that's authentic assessment, which we haven't talked on yet, but it's, but it's more experiential. Yeah, and bringing more experiential stuff. So basically, yeah, bringing it into the twentieth century, really. Well, that, that which brings me to my final point, which is institution level um, focus, priorities, and um, teaching approaches review. So yeah, kind of looking at those, uh, yeah, assessment schemes, how uh, the activities, uh, sort of, you know, what kinds of activities, how do we want to teach these uh i keep on calling them courses these classes going forwards what are the actual priorities what are they trying to produce is hogwarts a self-sustaining witch and wizard production machine or is it something better 
Um, is there anything? Oh, and we oh, sausage factory. Um, and I've also got here a note about um, we've added a zero onto our day rate, uh, and refreshments <laughs> should include a selection of biscuits. Yes, absolutely. Not just, to, not just your shortbread shit. We no. want a variety, including Jaffa cakes. I, I, I'm going to put order in for fries, chocolate, biscuit. Uh, when magic Sorry. comes back, I think we would, um, uh, you know, a tour of, you know, the place in its full glory would be would be marvellous. And maybe some lessons for ourselves. Mm. I think that would be quite a good yeah. bargaining chip. I think so. Um, should, but, we, uh, should we embed ourselves? I mean, they've got accommodation. Oh, I like it better. Okay, Ooh. yeah. Like I said, I, I'm kind of interested in the divination stuff. So, I mean, doing attending a course on that would be really useful. I couldn't do the broom flying because I would get motion sick. But um, but apart from that, it all looks okay. I think they have inherent stability. I've heard great things about these brooms. It's the inherent stability that, that creates apparently the all you have to do. Apparently, all you have to do is grip it between your knees and try not to slide off the end. It's the inherent stability because it's not, because it's inherently st- stable. You get no sense. You get don't get that proprioception sense of movement, and that's what creates the motion sickness. I wonder though. I wonder if their experience of brooms is going to cause them more or fewer tra- more or fewer issues with VR. A fewer oh, issues with VR. Yeah. If they can, if this is what I'm basing it on, is I get sick in VR. I'm assuming, therefore, I get sick on a broom. If they don't get sick on a broom, they won't get sick in VR. I'm pretty. Sure, I could pretty much guarantee that they're used to manipulation of wands and things, so yeah. that would be good as well. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. the gap between maybe the their gap, their technology gap, there will be will be less, or digital gap will be less. Then, is there anything else we want to add on to this um, proposal before before it goes? Any any final thoughts? Any more thoughts will spin us off into a whole new. <laughs> That's a whole new. Say, I was just going to say, does everybody have their actions? Good. Let's go. <laughs> well, it, it just seems to me so the non-magical stuff we make more active, and the actually mm. magical stuff we're making less active, but with a deeper understanding, so they can gain mastery in it for when the magic comes back. Yeah. That's, yep. that's very eloquent. Critical, it, it, it is very eloquent. It's also it's a short magic theory. It's elegant. <laughs> elegant and eloquent. You've oh, um, actually summarised me. It took me like twenty minutes to summarise <laughs> two sentences. Okay, right. I am sticking this um, in the owl. No, I'll put it in the envelope first. <laughs> there we go. I think that's a different episode. Owl is very very cross. Um, and uh, and yeah, let's see uh, let's see if they bite. I'm sure the bill. Hopefully, sure we won't get a howler, a howler back going, "You idiots!" <laughs> <laughs> well, um, listeners, I hope you've uh, enjoyed us uh, sharing. Just kind of, I guess, we've just recorded our meeting as we as we sent this proposal to Hogwarts. We will, of course, uh, be recording updates further down the line uh, based on how this goes, uh, and we'll let you know. But in the meantime. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us at all, you can do so via Owl, uh, via Howler, or via Twitter. Uh, I'm at Pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. I'm at Liz underscore Isabella. And I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be Owls and Howlers just for uh, Chris. <laughs> An owl is more than welcome. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, not the cross owl I've got here. Um, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye. Bye.